And may I may add my welcome to Alistair's. It's really good to see you. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's great to see you all. And tonight we are continuing in our sermon series looking at the attributes of God. Now as a quick recap, the attributes of God are the things that we say about God which make him who he is. And tonight we're going to be considering the fact that God is infinite. And I'd like to start by playing a little game with you all. So I'm going to need some audience anticipation if that's okay. So what I need you all to do is think of the smallest thing that you can possibly imagine. And when you've got something, shout it out so everyone can hear it. An electron. Something big. What's that? Quark. Yeah, okay. So we've got electron, quark. Can we go bigger than that? <laughs> something bigger than that. Blackberry is something bigger than that. Yeah, bigger than that. Apple, bigger than that. Apple tree, yeah, bigger than an apple tree. Thanks, Isaac Newton. Anything bigger than an apple tree? Oak tree, excellent. Bit of a theme of trees here. Uh, okay, let's go a bit bigger than that. Can we go for something big? I've got two answers here. Mountain and... United Kingdom. United Kingdom, I mean, we're all right, aren't we? Anything bigger than that? The moon, bigger than that? Bigger than that? The sun. Okay, we can go on playing this game for as long as we could possibly want. But eventually, if we call ourselves Christians here tonight, then we have nothing else to say than God. If we call ourselves Christians here tonight, then eventually we will end up with nothing more than we can say than God. We need to finish with God because it says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God is the one who fills everything in every way. Smallest to biggest is a great uh, game, especially if you've got little children who've got very long car journeys. But I must confess, this is not a game that the Barnes family can take credit for. Because it turns out that theologians have been trying to play this game for centuries. They've been trying to figure out ways of wanting, they've been wanting to find out a way to talk about what it means for God to be infinite. Take these words from Stephen Charnock. Whatever God is, he is infinitely so. When you have risen to the highest, conceive him yet infinitely above all you can conceive of spirit and acknowledge the infirmity of your own minds. And whatever conception comes into your mind, say, this is not God. God is more than that. In other words, God is beyond all of our understanding. Pursuit of the knowledge of God for us mere humans will take us to places that we just don't understand. And yet when we do begin to think of things that we do understand, well, that is proof, my friends, that we have a far too small idea of what God is. Maximus the Confessor said this, whoever has seen God and understood what he saw has seen nothing. And this is something that comes up again and again throughout scripture. Think of Job chapter 11, for example. Listen to this. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? 
They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. So can you hear how God is being described here? God, he has no limits. He has no boundaries in who he is. He is infinite. And this is our God that we worship. An infinite God. Well, let's move on. Now, if God is infinite, if that is the case, and is therefore above any of our understanding and comprehension, then how is it that we can even begin to talk about God in any kind of meaningful way? How is it that we can do that? Well, I think the best thing for us to do is to put up a few pieces of scaffolding in place, a bit of a framework so we know what it is that we are going to be talking about when we refer to God. The infinity of God, shall we say, is one of those attributes, it's one of those overarching attributes that we'll be looking at throughout this series. In some ways, it doesn't really matter what we'll be looking at one week uh, while we're here together, whether it's love or justice or sovereignty or whatever it is. Whatever we'll be doing on a particular Sunday evening, we're always going to be discussing an attribute in terms of God's infinity. And because of this, God's infinity means a few different things. And I don't have an infinite number of points to share with you. Just eight. Let's see how we get on. Number one, because God is infinite, God is self-sufficient in every way. God is entirely self-existent and self-sufficient. In other words, he isn't measurable or contingent, or conditional on anything outside of himself. God doesn't exist in any sense that he is dependent or reliant on anything else. He is not needy in any way. He is not lonely in heaven without us. God exists because God does. He doesn't need his creation or his humanity for existence or meaning. And we see this actually in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, God refers to himself as being I am. God says to Moses, I am who I am. God is I am before the foundation of the world. And Jesus himself picked up these words in the Gospel of John And he said, before Abraham, that is, before the father of fathers within the Jewish faith, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And to the Jewish people he was talking to, that was scandalous. That was the height of blasphemy. Because for Jesus to claim I am is to claim co-identity as the eternal, self-sufficient, self-reliant and infinite God. Because God is infinite, God is self-sufficient in every way. Number two, because God is infinite, all of God's attributes are also infinite. God's infinity defines all of his attributes in that everything he is, he is completely. In other words, God is simple and not made up of parts and percentages. And let me try and explain that. Let me try and explain with a bit of a visual aid, if I may. Now, 
what I have here. Some Barnes family treasure. Who doesn't love chocolate brownie? Don't worry, I'm not going to eat it in front of you. But um, what I want to try and demonstrate to you is that if you've ever made cake, and if you like watching the British Bake Off as myself and my wife do, then you'll know that to make something like a chocolate brownie, it involves several essential ingredients at different measurements. So, for instance, you've got some butter. You've got some flour, for instance. You've got an egg. I'll try to be careful not to break it. You've got an egg here, and you've also got some sugar. And you've also used chocolate. Very important, that bit. So, what we have here, in order to make brownies, you have very essential ingredients which you then need to mix together in order for it to become what it is. Now, when we say that God is simple, we are saying that God is not like that. We are saying that he is not the sum of his parts, not made up of a bit of love with a dash of holiness and a smidgen of wrath, all mixed in together to make God who he is. No, what we are saying when God is simple is that God is all, all the things, all of these things. He's all of his attributes at the same time. And he's infinite in each one of them. And they are together in one indivisible divine essence. If you're struggling to think of that kind of idea, then consider the word quite. God just simply, follow the pun, can't be quite anything. If God is love, then God can't be quite loving. He has to be infinitely loving. He has to be infinitely loving and he has to be infinitely whatever he is in all of his attributes. There isn't, say, an objective standard within the universe which can be more loving from which we can measure who, how loving God is. So whatever God is, he just defines it. And the other things are measured from God's standard, not the other way around. So whilst we can say, well, we can be quite loving, or we can be quite nice, or we can be quite angry at times. We can be quite lots of things, but God just can't be. He is loving. He is love. He is never less than love, and so on. So God isn't quite anything, and any attribute that he possesses, he necessarily possesses that thing infinitely and is therefore the very definition of that thing. Here are some wise words from Bob Lefham. God, who permeates his creation, vastly transcends it. In relation to space, he is immense. In relation to time, he is eternal. In relation to creation, he is omnipresent. In relation to knowledge, he is omniscient, in relation to power, he is omnipotent, and so on. So, because God is infinite, all of his attributes are also infinite. Quite simple. Number three, because God is infinite, God is unable to change. Because God is infinite, then God's identity cannot become more or less loving 
In other words, there cannot be a time when we look back and see a more or less loving God than he is now. And there cannot be a time we can look forward to where God would be more or less loving than he is now. He is who he is, and he possesses these qualities infinitely and eternally. God cannot become something. He always has and always will be what he alone is. He is that fully actualized being who needs nothing and yet possesses everything. There's no space for him to grow into. There's no unrealized potential. There's no deterioration. There's no entropy. There's no progression. He just is. Let's think again about the game that we were playing earlier, smallest to biggest. Now, babies, as far as I understand it, they start very, very tiny. I started 11 pounds, but that's beside the point. But they start small and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and they grow, not just in size as they reach adulthood, but also in other things like emotional intelligence. And I've also been told that when you get older in years, you shrink not just in size, but in other faculties. If you think about it, many old folk amongst us here and other people that we know, they lose emotional intelligence because of dementia and other illnesses. Not so with God. God cannot and does not grow nor shrink in any of his attributes because he is infinite in all that he is. And yet, may I submit to you all today, it can be tempting to think otherwise, can't it? May I suggest that sometimes we can act as though God is more or less loving towards us, depending on our life circumstances. For example, we may say, thing, we may say things like, I've had such a rubbish week. I've messed up and screwed up again and again and again. I've let my friends down, I've let my family down, I've let myself down, I've let God down. So many things in my life this week or this past month or this past year have gone so wrong. Surely God mustn't love me the same way as he used to do. I wish God could be more loving to me than he is now. Does that ring any bells to any of you? It certainly does for me. When so many little things get, go wrong in my life, they pile up and they pile up and I cannot help but explode. I'm wondering, God, do you care about me? Do you not love me? Well, that thinking is not biblical. Because God is infinite, God cannot and does not change in any way. And that is very, very good news. Because God is infinite... He is not unstable with any of his emotions. Meaning we can be confident that every time we go to bed at night, we can be confident that how God sees us is the same way as he sees us yesterday and tomorrow. We can go to bed confident in how we stand before him if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. We can be confident that our salvation is secure and that God is not going to somehow change his mind overnight. Isn't that so reassuring? Because God is infinite. He is unable to change in all that he is. And we can be confident 
not just about that, but we can be confident that he will deliver and fulfill all of his promises, including the promise to usher in a new creation where sin and death will be no more and where God will wipe every tear from his children's eyes. Because God is infinite, God is unable to change. And if you want to think about that a little bit more, then Joseph will be taking us through that a little bit more next week, so come back and find out more. But for now, there's just a little bit of a framework for my first three points tonight, and which hopefully will guide us to look at God's infinity in a helpful way. But now it's time for us to move on, to explore some of the implications for us regarding God's infinity. And as we try to do every week in this series, what we want to do is more than just look at these attributes of God in their own right. What we want to be doing is we want to see what real differences do these attributes of God make to us, our salvation and our lives as humans and as Christians. And our hope is that when we have done that, it will lead us to a place where we feel more and more excited about Jesus and that will stir us to greater, deeper, richer worship and our faith will be strengthened. And so that's what I want us to be doing as we go through the rest of our time together this evening. We want to see what difference does the infinity of God make to us and how we live. Well, earlier on in the service, we heard from the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And what we see in Revelation, chapter 1, is that God's infinity is spoken in terms of its creation. It links infinity with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It links infinity with the atonement and the judgment of sin. And it links infinity through into a glorious state where we are made into a kingdom of priests to serve an infinite God for all eternity. Well, with all that in mind, let's start unpacking all of these things, starting with number four. Because God is infinite, our sin is more serious than we have feared. We have a tendency, don't we, sometimes to downplay our sin. It can become trivialised or it can become normalised or rationalised sometimes, really quickly. We go very quickly from, no, I absolutely did not sin, to, well, perhaps I did sin, but nobody told me it was against the rules. Nobody explained it to me, so it's not really my fault. We quickly shift the blame, don't we, and standards often shift, don't they? And we can sometimes exonerate ourselves. But God's infinity brings the blame for sin squarely to our front door. Psalm 51 says this, Against you, God, you alone have I sinned. Our sin, my friends, is a problem because of the one against whom we have sinned. We've not sinned against an equivalent being like sinning against another human being. We've not sinned against a relative being like another creature in God's creation. We've not even sinned against a superior being. No, it's far more serious than that. We have sinned ultimately against an infinite being. An eternal, pure, good being who will never change. If you've got Revelation chapter 1 open, then just glance at verse 8. Have a glance at verse 8. And see how God is described there. 
who have we sinned against? According to Revelation 1 verse 8, we have sinned against the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Almighty. And that's a scary prospect, isn't it? When that comes home to us, when it comes to our fallen humanity and the state that it's all in, then that's the only, then what's the response that we have? What can we say? We'll now glance at verse 7 and listen to the response. Verse 7 says this, Look, he, that is God, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Our sin is more serious because of God's infinity. Number five, because God is infinite, God's judgment is more terrifying than we have realized. God's infinity means that his judgment is a terrifying prospect. People will often object to the idea of hell. Maybe maybe you do tonight, and maybe you know some people who object to the idea of eternal punishment. Maybe that's exactly how you're feeling this evening. I, I absolutely get it. It is a very, very difficult thing to contemplate and to think about. It's not very nice. It isn't popular. You know, because, apart from anything else, we think it's just simply unfair. But what happens is, when people get into that way of thinking, what happens for many is that they move into a kind of annihilationism. The idea that eventually God will one day just give people a slap on the wrist... And then eventually they'll just vanish like vapour and there will be no more. They'll just be gone. Or for others, it might mean moving to a kind of universalism. The idea that God is ultimately a loving God, therefore he will just save everyone no matter what they have done. And both of those ideas, they are attractive, aren't they? It would be great for if, you, if God was just what the universalists teach, which is, he's just a loving God, he will just save everyone. It's very, it's very appealing, it's very attractive, it's very tempting to think that this is true and easy. But here is the question in the middle of all of this. Why should sins committed in such a short space of time receive an eternal punishment? Well, the answer is because of God's infinity. Because our sins are committed against the eternal, infinite God, no less than an eternal punishment is therefore sufficient. It's very hard teaching, isn't it? It's very difficult to swallow. But that is what the Bible does teach. And it's also the issue which the gospel comes to address. And this is where we move on to the good news. Number six, because God is infinite, the incarnation is more gracious than we have appreciated. Let's now look at verses four and five of Revelation chapter one. This infinite one who is offended by our sin is also the one who offers grace and peace. And he offers this grace and peace through the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to be the faithful witness to God. Revelation 1, verses 4 and 5. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, 
the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There are, very, there are some very well-known verses in Philippians chapter 2, and they speak of the Lord Jesus um, he coming into this world, emptying himself, and not grasping equality with God. You may know these verses really, really well. You often hear them at weddings and so on. They're famous verses. But when we hear these verses like in Philippians 2 and others like it, we need to understand them and think of them in terms of the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, because he is infinite. And that makes the incarnation all the more mind-blowing. How so? Well, when we talk about Jesus Christ and the Word made flesh, we are not saying that he left a first-class carriage to slum it in economy class for a few years in some kind of patronizing show of support. What we are saying is that the Word of God left heaven. Infinity subjected itself to time and space and discomfort and limitation, and even to death, for the sake of saving sinners who deserved eternal punishment. He, that is the Lord Jesus, the infinite person, gave himself wholly to finite humanity. A.W. Tozer writes this, An infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself, that each may have a part. But to each one he gives all of himself, as fully as if there were no others. When we come to God incarnate, we come to a whole Christ. The incarnation is infinite self-giving by an infinite self-sufficient God. But the good news gets even, even better. Number seven, because God is infinite, Jesus' blood is more precious than we have dreamed. Here's a question for us all. If there are millions and millions of people, and those millions and millions of people commit billions upon billions of sins, then how can a few short hours on the cross deal with the problem of sin? And again, the place where often people go to on this is that they will reject things like the atonement. They will reject penal substitution. The idea that Jesus took on our punishment in his body. They'll say that Jesus isn't really bearing our sin and our punishment. They'll say Jesus' death on the cross is therefore not sufficient to cover sin because of its relative brevity. So basically they're saying something other than the atonement is going on. Something other than redemption for sin is happening on the cross. They'll say that it's just perhaps some kind of extravaganza show of love or something like that. But again, that's not biblical, is it? And it's not what Revelation chapter 1 teaches. Have a look down at verse 5. To him, that is the eternal infinite God who loves us and who has freed us from our sins. By what? What's the answer? By his blood. So what is the answer then to the conundrum of apparent disparity between Christ's suffering and our sin? Well, the answer is that the atonement is precious because of the one who gives atonement. 
The one who gives atonement, the effectiveness and the dignity of the work, it all depends on the worth of the person. And Acts 20 verse 28 says that it's God himself who sheds his own blood to purchase the church. So this is very much the flip side of the coin of what we saw earlier, isn't it? Because our sins, they are committed against an infinite God and therefore they require eternal punishment. But, my friends, if our atonement is brought by an infinite person, then that sacrifice, that is Jesus' blood, is sufficient for eternal redemption. Christ Jesus atoned for sins because the atonement needed to be infinite. Here's how Thomas Goodwin puts it. But as the offence is against an infinite and glorious God, so the holy works are wrought by one who is infinite. For our salvation rests on the fact that the infinite one became a man to die in the place of sinners. Now here's a great quote from Matthew Mead. Alas, it is an infinite righteousness that must satisfy for our sins. For it is an infinite God that is offended by those sins. If ever your sin be pardoned, it is infinite mercy that must pardon it. If ever you be reconciled to God, it is infinite merit that must do it. If ever your heart be changed and your soul renewed, It is infinite power that must affect it. And if ever your soul escape hell and be saved at last, it is infinite grace that must save it. Because God is infinite, the blood of Jesus is more precious than we could have ever dreamed because the atonement that he has provided is infinite because he is infinite and therefore It is sufficient for our eternal redemption. Finally, number eight, because God is infinite, heaven will be more fun than we can ever imagine. I don't know what your concept of heaven is. I don't know what you think about when you think about the new creation. Ben Daly helped us this morning. But whatever it is, it needs improving. It falls short of what God has in store for his people. In our exalted state, we will be able to perfectly apply our minds to the knowledge of God by means of the Holy Spirit illuminating our spiritual and intellectual facilities. My friends, we shall spend an eternity knowing God and learning about God and serving God and enjoying God. And it won't ever be boring. It's often the kind of thing... Isn't it when we think about heaven, you know, maybe some kind of never ending church service, as good as this might be, but some kind of never ending church service, perhaps with some kind of dreamy, spacey, ambient music that you sometimes hear in airports. Maybe there'll be not enough chairs, there'll be too many people there, but whatever it is, it will just be some kind of never ending state of just being okay. And eventually it will just grow tiresome and boring. But we've got to have a higher hopes. We need higher hopes than that in terms of what we see of heaven and the new creation because God is infinite. 
Let me explain. God is not a compelling novel that we don't want to end. He's not our favourite song that we need to just keep on putting on repeat. He's not our favourite food which we'll eventually get sick of. He's not just a reliable friend that we'll eventually grow tired of being around. He's not our favourite holiday destination that we'll get bored of returning to. No, he is more than that, much more than that. He is infinite. He is bottomless riches. He is unsearchable wisdom. He is unrelenting exhilaration. He is unending satisfaction in every sense. He is unbridled joy. He is unrestrained delight. And he is unrelenting enjoyment. He is infinite. And when we see him with unveiled faces, we will enjoy this infinite God forever. Let's finish by looking at Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's our destiny.